So, All right, we're going to continue in our Advent series. We're calling it Oddballs and Outsiders, part two today. Oddballs and Outsiders, part two. And we're going to be in Luke chapter one. And the title today is Too Late for Joy. Do you need a Bible? If you need a Bible, um, maybe we can make those available to you. Ron will do that on this side and um, Jared will do that on this side. Thank you, Jared. He was just letting Stephen know he wants to be in the College Connection group because they're going to have a couple of College Connection groups um, uh, starting in the new year, particularly once we had to two services, launching our two-service format at the end of January. January 24th will be the first time for two services, 9.30 and 11. So um, pick your service and uh, look forward to having you part of that. If you're using that red Bible, you're going to be on page 635, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. I want to say the Bible has two really famous um, senior couples, and uh, they have a lot in common, these two famous senior couples. The most famous uh, couple, senior couple, is featured very near the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, and the second most famous senior couple is found in the very beginning, or near the very beginning of the New Testament at the start of Luke's gospel, where we'll be today. Both were used by God at Real turning points in history, significant times of history. Both were righteous, faithful people, faithful couples. But what most makes these couples famous to us is that at the very time they should have been enjoying, uh, you know, grandchildren or even great-grandchildren, they became parents for the first time. So the first couple in the Bible that are really famous for this reason are Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is really the father of the Jewish nation. God had called him from what's today probably Iraq and had him come to this land that was called Canaan at the time, what was modern day, what is modern day Israel. He said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And Abraham had no children at that time. And uh, it wasn't until he was nearly 100 years old that Isaac was born. Isaac gave birth to Jacob or he didn't, his wife did, but you know what I mean. Isaac is the father of Jacob, Jacob who became known as Israel, the father of the Israelite nation. And then this second couple are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's who we're looking at today. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, the story begins like this. When Herod was king of Judea. Now, Judea had been, uh, you know, Israel had been overtaken or conquered by the Roman Empire and they named it uh, Judea and placed uh, a, a king in, 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 that, in that spot. Luke, the author, is letting us know of some very specific time, location and conditions for the events that he's about to talk about through the rest of his book. But what he's also pointing out is that Israel was not really in the best place or time of its history. Um, Herod is a king, but Herod was Jewish, yet he was a a vassal or a a puppet, a pawn, really, of Caesar Augustus. Now, Herod loved Rome, and he built a number of cities or rebuilt some places, uh, including um, 
uh, well, anyway, he, including your most kind of know about Masada is probably a place you've heard about. He really developed that. He loved building in the Roman style and loved kind of the Romans to come. He really wanted to show off to, to Caesar that he was loyal to Caesar. Built a big city on the coast and named it after Caesar. Uh, called um, Caesar, uh, Caesarea Maritima. So if you ever go, you'll see that. Um, and Herod loved all the power and paganism of Rome and made sure that his nation of, uh, or his province of Judea, you know, played by the rules, stayed in line uh, while it was occupied by the Roman Empire. And so Luke might be saying as he sets up a story, look, in spite of a, of a really difficult time or, or political you know, terrible political reality, God is about to do something remarkable. Terrible political reality, a promise of something good. I wonder if that compares to many places in the world today. Luke does not mention that it's been about four, you know, a a quiet 400 years in Israel. He is spiritually speaking. He, no one has seen or heard much from God, not directly, in a very long time. And they're still keeping up with religious practice. But the last words of the last recorded prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, in the end of chapter 4, are this. I'm going to put those on screen. Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant. All the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's the last they'd heard, really, directly from God. It's a command and it's a promise. It's a command to be faithful to the law. And it's a promise that God would send a powerful prophet to bring renewal to Israel. Well, if we're talking about oddballs and outsiders this Advent, Zechariah and Elizabeth definitely fit the description. In spite of a deep walk with God, they were childless. And in that culture, it was assumed that if you're righteous person or a righteous couple, you'll be blessed with children. And if you have no children, you're clearly not righteous. And yet we have a problem or a a bit of a dilemma because we have an obviously righteous couple and yet no children. Well, I'm going to read their story from Luke chapter one, starting at verse five. But let me give you a little bit of background first so it makes some sense in the context. So I've already mentioned Israel, the father of Israel. He had 12 sons that we talked about one of them last week, Judah. And while they they had they had moved to to Egypt under Joseph's leadership, Joseph was also one of the sons of Israel and they grew into a great nation. And as that happened, they were enslaved by the Pharaoh. And for over 400 years, they lived and worked in Egypt. And finally, God sent a messenger, Moses. God said to Moses, Moses. I've heard the cries and the prayers of my people. Now go and lead my people out of Egypt. So Moses went to Egypt and led them into the wilderness. And while they were there, God established for them the code of their religious practice. The law, how they would build a tabernacle, the times and places and 
and means of their worship for God, how they would make sacrifices. And in that, there were these 12 sons of Israel really became the 12, what we call the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. One of them was Judah, another one was Reuben, one was Dan, one was Benjamin. And one of those, his name was Levi. And as they were first in the wilderness, they were disobedient to God and God held them back from entering the promised land for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness. But finally, as they were to enter the land of Canaan, under the direction of Joshua, each family grouping, each tribe was to receive an allotment of land, except for one, and that was Levi. The tribe of Levi was given a special challenge, a special task to be the religious workers, the ones who would help them observe worship, the ones who would maintain the tabernacle and later the temple of God. In that tribe of Levi, from whom actually Moses was in that tribe, there was a man named Aaron. Now, Aaron was Moses' brother. When, when Moses had been, before he'd gone back to Egypt, he was in the wilderness and tending sheep. And one day he sees a tree on fire, a, a bush, a shrub is burning. And he says, my, my, I shall have a look at that. More, it was more like, ah, there's a tree on fire and it's speaking to me. It's speaking to me. And so God gave him his message. And Moses, Moses said, I cannot go to Egypt. God, I can't even speak. And finally, um, God relented and said, fine, you can take your brother Aaron with you and he will speak on your behalf. And so that Aaron became the first high priest for the people of Israel. And all of Aaron's descendants would be Priests, all his male descendants would be priests for Israel. So, if you were born in the line, in the family tree branch of Aaron, you, as a man, you would be a priest, whether you wanted to be or not. You didn't get to choose your profession in that case, and some of them were wicked, and many of them were good. But that was your lot. Well, along that line is Zechariah. And it so happens that his wife was also in that line. Now, you can imagine that this group of Levites grows and grows and grows along with the the family tree of Aaron. And so uh, in the time of King David, David came up with an administrative plan to manage all these people because there are so many priests. How are you going to keep them all occupied? So David created a structure. He created 24 divisions for the priests, somewhat somewhat arbitrarily, but under different family names, created 24 divisions. Divisions. The eighth division of that was Abijah. Now, I don't know if numbers are important to you, but they were important to the Jewish people and they're important in Scripture. The number eight is the number for a new beginning. So creation is all God created all the world and everything in it, including you and me, in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. The eighth day is the start of the new creation. It's day one. So eight is always the symbol or the sign of a new beginning, a new start. And he was in the eighth division. Zechariah was. We're going to learn that. And uh, their job was every twice, twice a year, that division would serve the temple for a week. And so every morning there's a sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice of a lamb on the altar. 
And there is a sacrifice of incense. Now, let me show you a little picture. This is kind of a, an artist's rendering of the temple. Here's how the temple was laid out. The outside of the temple is what's today called the, the Temple Mount. And any Gentiles or anybody could be out there. Inside the first section is what they call the women's courtyard. And, like, as you can imagine, that's where women could go. If Today, if you go to the, to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and you approach the Western Wall, there's the men's side and the women's side. It used to be like that in Mennonite churches, I'm told. Um, thankfully, it's not that way any longer. But, um, and then inside the next section, this is Gate of Nicanor, but inside that next section was the court of men. And men could go in there, and that's where the altar of sacrifice was. Every morning, every night, they'd, they'd sacrifice a lamb and burned offering to the Lord. Inside of the temple, in the first part inside of the temple, was the court of the priests. And inside the court of the priests was another altar, and that's the altar of incense. And every morning and every night, in conjunction with a burnt offering outside, a priest would have to go in and burn the incense offering to the Lord. There's actually three jobs that were given, decided by lot. One would go in and remove the ashes from the previous offering. One would bring new hot coals in. And the third one, a very special job, would bring the incense. And you can imagine that well, what's happening when that incense gets burned. It's a very multi-sensory worship experience. You've got fragrance. You've got the cloud of smoke. You've got the sound of the crackling of the incense. It's a very, lots is happening all at once. Well, a priest was allowed to burn that incense once. Not once a day. Not once a year. Once in a lifetime. So, you have this dream of every priest to be able to be Selected by Lot to be able to go in and burn the incense offering. And that is where we're going to pick up the story. I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's Word. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. And they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. Okay, one of his two weeks of the year that he'd be in Jerusalem to serve at the temple. Verse 9, as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Verse 11, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right side of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. 
and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn. Now, this phrase should ring a bell for you. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. And then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. And when Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. And soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. And now jump with me to verse 57. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. And when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision, circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father for what he wanted to name him. So we learned from that verse that Zechariah was not only uh, unable to speak, but he would have been deaf during that time, too. He's been plunged into total silence for nine months. They gestured to him uh, what he wanted to name him. And he motioned for a writing tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. And instantly Zechariah could speak again. And he began praising God. Awe fell on the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread through the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's be seated together. I I want to share three um, little takeaways from this account. With you, My favorite line in this whole episode is from Gabriel, who said in verse 13, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. In other words, Zechariah and Elizabeth, no doubt, had prayed for a child, even though time and biology made it clear this was not going to happen. And they were advanced in years, we're told. They're done, finished. And yet, Zechariah prayed. Here's my first takeaway for you. Ask and expect greater things from God. Ask and expect greater things from God. Some things you pray for might not happen soon or may not even happen in your lifetime. And God may well answer in ways that are completely unexpected. I mean, why couldn't this couple have had a child earlier in life when it would be so much easier? Right? Did God need... To see that they could be trusted with such a special person as John? I mean, was John given in Elizabeth's old age just to prove how righteous and blessed she was? Maybe John needed to have older parents 
so that when he was, you know, so that later in life they would have passed away and he would not be required to care for them and instead would be free to pursue the prophetic calling on his life. I, I, I don't know, but um, I'm not even convinced that Zechariah would have necessarily prayed with a lot of faith because he did doubt Gabriel's message when it came. But he did pray. We know that. Years later, Jesus would teach that even faith as tiny as a mustard seed, that's really small. It's really, really small. That that kind of faith is enough. It's not, see, it's not me and it's not my faith that does the work of answering prayer. It's God. God does the work. And sometimes the only faith I have is to speak the request. That's how tiny my faith is sometimes, to speak the request, not even necessarily the faith to believe that it will happen, but at least I have enough faith to say it. And it turns out that's enough. See, when it comes to prayer, we need to ask for and expect greater things from God. We, we pray, yes, in keeping with God's will. But if God's created a good, godly desire in your heart, don't say, oh, I can never ask for that. Just ask. And let the Lord answer it in his special way. Zechariah and Elizabeth had every excuse to give up. A barren womb, old age, bad political times, a silent God, and yet they asked. And it turns out they were asking for something that was exactly in the will of God. For what greater things will you ask? Second takeaway. God's salvation is joyful good news. God's salvation is joyful good good news. See, John was not born to be the Savior. He was born to announce the Savior, Jesus Messiah. It was customary in that time if a dignitary or particularly a king or or leader, world leader, they'd send an emissary, an ambassador, they'd send a, a person ahead to announce the coming of that important person. That's what God's doing in keeping with the cultural practice of the time. John is coming to announce the Savior, Jesus, Messiah. But I love the significance of the names here. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. But John, John, who comes from the Lord remembers to announce the arrival of the Lord saves, John's name means God is gracious. God remembers, God is gracious, and God saves. That's good news for your life. God remembers. God is gracious and God saves. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He's made a way for you to be made forgiven, clean, and righteous. But to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John was also a sort of a savior. His birth saved Elizabeth from the embarrassment of childlessness and from the sadness of being alone. We see in verses 14 and 15, The angel Gabriel say, you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice. Other people will be happy as well at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. This encounter reminds uh, us of something we often forget, that the good news is good news. The good news is actually good news. And at some point this season, you'll be reminded of the angel's message to the shepherds, maybe when you watch Charlie Brown's Christmas again, you'll see Linus step on the stage and he'll say, Behold, I bring you 
good news of great joy that shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you don't have a habit, by the way, in your family of watching that movie, you need to. That's such a great little show. I know you're thinking about the tune right now. Right? Listen, when you have the opportunity to share your faith, never forget that the good news is joyful good news. Always start with God, God who is good. Always start with the message that God loves you, God came to save. God has made a way for you to know Him. It's joyful good news. And, yes, children are meant to be a source of great joy for all parents, as John would be for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Sometimes as parents we joke about children being a bit of a burden. Uh, we just need to not do that, parents. Um, the Bible teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're an inheritance from Him. They're not always easy to handle, but they are a gift from God and a source of joy. And like John, I'd rather my kids be great in the eyes of the Lord than great in the eyes of their peers or their teachers or even grandma and grandpa. But I will add this to you younger folks in our congregation, you kids. The more you aim to be a source of joy for your parents, the better things tend to go for you. Mom and dad are just ordinary people, so make it easy for them to love you, okay? (laughs) My son's do that. They're wonderful. Well, does this mean we need children to make us happy? Because some of you, for example, have not been able to have children. I would say no. John was God's blessing to them and a great source of joy for them and for others. But this is still a message about God's saving work of grace. God's salvation is your source of joy regardless of your circumstances. Let me say that again. God's salvation is your source of joy regardless of your circumstances. Even under King Herod, even in hardship, in sadness or grief or pain, the believer in Jesus has reason to be joyful for our salvation has come at last. You're not going to experience the full expression of that until you meet the Lord. But you will experience that as you trust in Him. All right, my third takeaway one minute I have left I would say this maintain routines that allow for significant God moments maintain routines that allow for significant God moments Zechariah was a priest by birth not by choice but he still I think could have opted out of his priestly duties he didn't have to show up he could have just checked out but instead he was faithful to keep up patterns of faithfulness Verse 6 says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the commands and regulations. The moment of encounter would not have happened without his ongoing faithfulness. I I estimate Zechariah may have been eligible for incense duty up to maybe 1,400 times in his life. If you figure uh, two weeks a year, seven days each of those, twice each day, let's say he was at this for about 50 years by this point, that's 1,400 do the math if you don't trust me. That's, that's what I come up with. And finally, he gets the opportunity to go into the courtyard of the priests and burn the incense. I make a nearly, personally, I make a nearly, day, nearly daily habit of reading the Bible and journaling. And I would encourage you to do something similar. But I don't experience an earth-shaking or earth-shattering revelation every time. 
In fact, it's very ordinary most of the time. But sometimes it's awesome. But the awesome God moments wouldn't happen without the ordinary many moments in between. Zechariah had just, just one encounter with the angel Gabriel. But it would, have not, it would not have happened had he not, every time it was his obligation to go, every opportunity had to be faithful to the Lord. He pursued that. He was faithful in his devotion to the Lord. There are other routines of faithfulness in this story too. Verse 10 says that while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. The folks were anticipating, appealing to God, bringing their requests. John would have been raised under that Nazarite vow of total alcohol abstinence. That's another routine of faithfulness in his life. John would not have become the prophet, John the Baptist, because that's who this John is. This is the John that becomes John the Baptist without commitment. I would just ask, what are some routines of faithfulness you can establish to allow for significant God moments? We're coming to the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. And it's a great time to, to lay out new, you know, some commitments, but you don't have to wait for January 1st. What, what routines of faithfulness could you establish? You don't even have to be old, you know, like 25 or 30, right? To start. I'd encourage even you teens to establish some good Spiritual habits include a little time in the Bible in the morning or the evening and talk to God. Get a little devotional manual. Do some some way of establishing some routines because over time those routines accumulate into spiritual resilience. Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived a good and godly life but had not been without heartache. And for some reason God chose them to bear John. The forerunner to the Messiah, but they never had grandchildren. John was John never married, as far as we know, and was beheaded by Herod later on, the next Herod. And for some reason, God chose them anyway to bear John, the forerunner to the Messiah, and this brought them great joy. Friend, you might feel like there's not much joy in your life, or that all the good times are in the past. Way back then, I'm here to remind you that God is not finished working in your life. He may have a past, but he has a future for you, too, wherever you're at. He's not finished in my life. He's not finished in your life. He's not finished with his church. You don't need to sit around thinking only about way back then. It's not too late for joy. But here's our part. Ask for and expect greater things from God. Remember that God's salvation is joyful good news. And then maintain routines of faithfulness that allow for significant God moments where God can speak. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for this, for preserving this story in Scripture of Zechariah and Elizabeth. What an amazing couple. And Lord, I, I, I can just imagine, particularly that weak Twice a year when Zechariah would go to Jerusalem and Elizabeth would be at home really feeling her loneliness, feeling her aloneness so acutely in those times. Watching everyone else have families and wondering what would happen to her in old age. God, you were faithful to answer their prayer. Maybe not in the way we would have answered it, but you did it. And I thank you for that. 
God, I thank you for reminding us today to be faithful to you. To walk with you, to establish those routines that give you the opportunity to speak into our lives. Pray that would be especially true in this Christmas season. Churches, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just want to give you the opportunity. Uh, maybe you're someone here today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and I want to give you that opportunity today. You're, you're hearing this and you're saying, what, good news for my life? Yes. If you're saying, I want to know the good news in my life, I want to be saved and be a follower of Jesus. If that's you, would you just raise your hand and I'll pray with you after the service. For the rest of us, the challenge then is, what are those routines that we need to develop? What are those greater things we need to ask the Lord for? Where do we need to remember that the good news really is joyful good news? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work these things in our lives. Each and every day, we pray in your name. Amen.